Hello there, and welcome to our podcast, Conversations in Noosa. My name is John Caruso. I've known Frank Wilkie for over a decade. He's an individual with many strings to his bow, and I've always admired his passion and his commitment. He's a councillor and deputy mayor of Noosa Council. He's a performer and playwright, and he's a devoted dad and fitness fanatic. In this podcast, we cover a lot of ground. Frank grew up in the same Brisbane suburb and the same street as Keith Urban, and he could see a superstar of the future in the making. We talk about that. We also discuss Frank's local government career, his teaching, and his work as a journalist. We start the pod by talking about what he did with himself when Noosa Council amalgamated with the Sunshine Coast Council. Uh, well, six years during the amalgamation years, I went back to journalism and I went back to high school teaching. That's right. You were a teacher. Yeah. Still yeah. live in Prigian Beach? Still live in Prigian Beach. Palmyra? Palmyra. That's Your right. Wife? That's right. Yeah. Little girl? Ziggy. She's yes. 16 now. She's almost as tall as me. All right. Gives me a hard time. Where, where did you grow up, Frank? Brisbane. Um, northern suburbs of Brisbane, Ashgrove, Barden, Red Hill. Went to Ashgrove Primary School, Kelvin Grove High School. Great. Great childhood. We yeah. used to play down the creek, run through the parks, out in the streets until, you know, dark, and then come home and um, there's a bunch of kids our own age we used to run around with. Keith Urban used to live across the road and he was my inspiration for learning guitar. Really? Yes. Now, I thought, I, I, I know he was born in NZ, but I thought he moved to Caboolture, but he was a Caboolture lad. After he was living in Brisbane, he then moved to Caboolture. Yeah. Um, I knew Keith when he was in about grade four. Yeah. And What uh, kind of kid was he? He was a great kid. Yeah. And um, I remember, distinctly remember seeing him on, sitting cross-legged on the bitchman at Ashgrove Primary School in his denim jeans and his denim jacket that his mum had um, embroidered. And he was playing Bad Moon Rising on this... this um, nylon string guitar with his long blonde hair with a, a big circle of girls around him. And I thought, I ought to learn myself the guitar. And get me some girls. Get me some girls! Get me a guitar. <laughs> get me some girls. Was there, just, just a little insight now, was there any, what's the word I'm looking for? Did he did he talk about stardom? Did yes, he, he did. Talk about, at and, that, this, and what age, well, how old would he have been? This was year four. So, yeah. so how old nine. was that? Nine. Nine or ten. So he was, I distinctly remember him saying then, Quite matter-of-factly, I'm going to be a pop star when I grow up. Is I'm going right? to be a pop star. And there was no doubt about it. He was going to be a pop star. So this kind of career, this path, it was something that was in him from yes. the age of nine or ten. That's right. Yeah. Whether it was nature or nurture, I don't know. But he was he, he was definite about it and he was confident about it. And he was playing um, Bad Moon Rising with the circle of girls around him. He went on Pot of Gold. And I remember Bernard King saying, son, if it... <laughs> Son, if you if you're going to sing, sing Australian. Don't sing American. Yeah. If you're Australian, sing Australian. Yeah. But that was the only criticism. But um, of course, we thought he was a, a hero, a legend, and he was a, a very likable person, um, very unassuming. Um, his older brother Shane Urban now is um, manage is the manager at the Coolum Surf Club. Yeah. Shane played the drums. I think he. He did. His dad certainly played the drums. His mother, Marion, uh, I think she still lives in Mooloolaba. Yeah. 
And he tours quite often. Do you go and see him? Have you I seen haven't. Him? No entertainment I, center. I haven't, but it's it's phenomenal uh, the way his skills have Im- incre- improved. He's such a fantastic performer. Mm. Yeah. Oh, enough enough about Keith. Yeah, everyone knows about Keith. I want to find out more about you though. Frank. Okay. What did you What did your parents do? Mum and dad do. Well, um, both started off as high school te- uh, as teachers. And then um, Dad studied night school for seven years. He became a barrister and he went into family law. Right. Ended up as a registrar of the family court. But f- most of his career he was a barrister. And Mum was a high school. Mum was a, a, a primary school teacher for all her working life yeah. as well. Apart from spying the urban kid and thinking, he's got a guitar and he's got the girls, uh, what, what, was there anything? What were your dreams as a kid? What, what did you want to do? Um <clears throat> What were my dreams as a kid? Yeah, well, at that oh, age, I, you know, I used, in that little suburban street there in Brisbane. Oh, being a soccer star, uh, being a, a rock star, um, just, um, yeah, just being able to run from dawn to dusk. I used to love my running. I yeah. still do my distance running. Um, yeah, just love playing guitar, love doing a bit of art, uh, love being with friends, um, just normal kid stuff, really. Normal kid stuff. When was it that you thought um, I, I want to be a journalist or, or which come like journalism or, or teaching? Which come? Look, I was never one of these people who had my career um, mapped out. Uh, I went to school with people who knew they were going to be an accountant or they're going to be a lawyer, and to their credit, they went off and did that. I never did that. I've taken the road less travelled. Uh, I've always just said yes to opportunities that presented themselves and followed that road as far as it could take me. It wasn't, into, and I, I spent many years working in the island resorts in the Whit Sundays, which was all service industry. Uh, and um, it wasn't until I moved to Noosa in 1996, where the opportunity to take on a cadetship, uh, journalism cadetship, came up, which I so I grabbed with both hands, qualified, became a qualified journalist. Um, that that took me towards you know the editorship of the Noosa News, um, working the Sunshine Coast daily. It was a discipline. It was hard, hard work. You'd be working on anywhere, you know, completing six stories a day, dealing with you know, 10,000 words of copy, whittling it down to six stories a day. It was just a, a, a hard school, uh, but nothing's ever wasted. It was just a very, very good discipline. And it, it introduced me to the Sunshine Coast and the Noosa Shire. You got I got to see firsthand the people who were doing amazing things across the length and breadth of the Sunshine Coast and, um, more importantly, an opportunity to assist them in achieving their their aims and objectives. You mentioned that it was hard work but very satisfying. Yes. And this is back, what, late 90s, early noughties? No, uh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah what, what do you think of... You know, what's your take on newsrooms these days? We've got the 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 digital age. Yes, newsrooms are shrinking. Yes, you know, it's a lot of rip and read. And 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 what's your take on that? Would would you still like to be in that in that arena doing print journalism? I wouldn't like to go back because uh, just just that's just my personal view. You no, keep, just you, keep moving forward. Yeah, um, but I've, I love journalists who are faithful to the facts and whatever they're reporting. And there's enormous pressure. I can appreciate enormous pressure for young journalists, especially to find a sensational angle. And it, it can involve the warping of the facts. And you've heard the saying, uh, you know, a lie gets halfway around the world before truth gets yeah. its pants on. It's very hard to recover for parties, aggrieved parties, to recover from yeah. fake news, I guess it's called now. I'll or, be warping some facts with this podcast Fantastic. later, Frank, just to make it attention grabbing. Right, but I'll keep my pants on. Creative t- <laughs> Get a creative tease out of it. When did the, the teaching come into it? I did a Bachelor of Arts degree in the early 80s and um, then I did some postgraduate study in drama and journalism and then I did a one-year graduate diploma of secondary education 
And um, when I first moved to the Sunshine Coast, I put my name down for supply teaching, which I did, then did the journalism. Then I went back in the in the interim during the amalgamation years. I did um, four years at the Noosa Pengari Steiner School as a yeah, teacher yeah. there for year well, seven. Still located and, uh, down the road? That's right, today. in, in yeah. the Doonan, Doonan yeah, right. campus, beautiful campus, yeah. yeah. And I, I think I learned more than – it was a, a very instructive for me as well. Yeah. yeah. Tell me more about that school because well, I've got a nine-year-old and I talk to other parents and it's – what kind of school is it? What kind of education does it give kids? Look, it's, it's based on the Steiner philosophy of education, which is that uh, um, uh, they match the curriculum to the developmental age stage of the child, which, I mean, a lot of education strives to do that. But they have uh, an integrate aim for an integrated um, um, approach to education. So – the maths, the history, the science, the the art, the music is all geared around a theme. So, for example, at age age thirteen, fourteen, um, that's the age of exp- one of the units is age of exploration, which is when man set out from the European base to explore the unknown worlds, and it it mirrors the journey of the the adolescent into unknown, uncharted waters of adolescence, and the hormonal changes are coming through the change, physical mental, emotional changes, spiritual changes that the child's going through. Is it for all kids? It's it's for all kids. Yeah. Look, it has a spiritual underpinning, but that's not overt in the education at all. It's secular. It's it's um there's no religious education or anything like that. But there is a uh, an under there's a spiritual understanding of the the human being that underpins that education. And the age of exploration um, was an age a stage of human development in the, in human history. And they believe that today's modern child is actually at age thirteen mirrors that um, that age of human development back in the thirteen, fourteen hundreds. So it it resonates um, very deeply um, within when the child done correctly and uh, to teach, it's just it's it's a wonderful thing to teach yeah. as well. How long were you there for? I was there for four years. Okay, and then I left when um, the Noosa Council was uh, de-amalgamating, and I, I felt strongly compelled to run again. Let's rewind to to the first time that when did the thought first enter your mind, and and those discussions that you have with your partner when you go, you know what? So you're a journalist at this stage. I was working at the Noosa News on oh, Noosa News. Noosa News, and you thought uh, I'm going to run for council. Yes, why? Well, one of the councillors uh, who I respected very deeply, um, Vivian Griffin, um, decided to resign. Uh, she was um, a- a- admitted that she was um, disheartened about the direction of the Noosa Council at the time. And um, <clears throat> I'd been privileged enough to report on, sit in on Noosa Council um, meetings for the best part of a, uh, a decade by that stage. And I got a very strong sense. I listened to all the debates, read all the reports. Um, very strong sense of, of the real difference that a, a local government can make to people's lives and the reasons why Noosa Council was different to other councils. Tell and me. It, tell me why. It placed a, a great value on the wishes and aspirations of the residents, which were enshrined in the town plan. They did a lot of consultation to put together the 1997 strategic plan, which said uh, uh, the, the residents wanted Noosa maintained as a series of interconnected villages. And if you if you have a series of interconnected villages as opposed to a metropolis, the, the population that's contained within that is much less than a metropolis. So the things that you lose when you're living in a, a big city, like um, uh, peace and quiet, uh, ease of transportation, getting around, um, lots of green space, um, clean air, clean access to clean water, 
um, not too much noise. Those that you lose that if you have if you choose to make a built up environment a very heavily urbanised environment. And they chose deliberately to not um, adopt just to to make sure that the symbols of urban ugliness, as Robin Boyd, who's an architect in the late 60s, 70s, that is parking metres, traffic lights, high-rise, commercial signage, for example, those symbols, urban symbols, were kept out of the Noosa urban landscape and lots of green space. So it's... And they became like um, iconic lines in the sand which which, um, were enshrined in the town plan and, and... policies and it's important that they're protected and uh, to maintain those points of difference because people come to Noosa and I'm sure you have you too John I drive up from Calandra or Maruchidor which which are you know people enjoy those places as well but you come to Noosa it's a different feel it's like for sure. me personally it's like oh, so you breathe out and you it hasn't happened by accident and yeah. there's some deliberate choices behind that and getting that understanding I felt strongly compelled to get in there and make sure that 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 line is held. How many years were you before it uh, amalgamated? Well, look, I put my foot on the sticky paper and I was only in there for one year. And I'd, I'd committed to running and I think it was during the uh, by-election election campaign where the state government said, well, Noosa Council is going to be amalgamated. So I was committed to that course and the door to uh, journalism had shut behind me. So I was committed to following through on that. When that news came out from Premier Beattie at the time about amalgamating all these smaller councils into one big council, what was your first thought, fear or reaction to that news? Well, it was the same as a lot of people in the Noosa community, that we're going to lose our points of difference, that the Noosa planning scheme would be homogenised into a broader Sunshine Coast planning scheme and the the limits on the things that those points of difference, such as the height limit, for example, uh, could be wiped away with a stroke of a pen because it's a numbers game. If Noosa councillors were only three or two out of um, 10 or 12 or three out of 10 or 12, they could be easily be overruled. But fortunately, there was high-level appreciation of Noosa's points of difference in the state government and they agreed to bring this iconic legislation which set up a panel of um, people who were prepared to assess planning uh, applications and assess it against the Noosa planning scheme, and the Noosa planning scheme was enshrined as a separate document um, under the the planning instruments that the Sunshine Coast Council uh, had regard to, and they did honour that. Uh, well, it must have been a relief to a lot of uh, Noosaites. Yes. Did you say Noosaites? Oh, well, then uh, hearing then that that former Noosa mayor Bob Abbott yes. became the, the the mayor of the amalgamated council. Yes. Did you have an opportunity to run for? I a- did. I ran and was. Oh, a- oh you did. I did. Okay. Like, there were in the former Noosa council. There were oh, I think ten councillors and uh, for four divisions, five divisions. and uh, But there's only two divisions in the amalgamated council. So I ran for um, Division 11, which is coastal Noosa, and was unsuccessful. Who beat you? Uh, Russell Green, okay, who, who proved to be a very effective advocate for Noosa yeah. uh, under the Sunshine Coast Council. Yeah. And in you know, everyone's wise in retrospect. It, it was a, a, it's devastating to lose any... Contest and especially one you're so passionate about, but I can see that uh, you know on my personal path that was meant to happen, and uh, I went into um, uh, the work that I took on during that time was very instructive for me. It's helped me in a great. It's a good way of looking at it, though, Frank. I mean, not a lot of people would would you know take that on board. I had Glenn Elms in here, and I think he he had the turn of phrase, which was you know politics never ends pleasantly. Uh, So for that kind of chapter of of that book to close. 
and then for you to get an opportunity to run again. Uh, I mean, what what made you run again? You still felt that you had a lot to offer. Yeah, uh, and it was unfinished work. Yeah, and also the sense that if I didn't run, it would be something I know I would have regretted sure. the rest of my life. It, the safe thing would have been to remain in the job I was doing because I loved the work. Uh, that was at the Steiner School. It was in personally very enriching, but I knew that if I didn't run, it would always be a regret, Yeah. and I didn't want to have that. Uh, it was terrifying, but I felt I had to do it. I had to find out one way or the other, and I'm so glad I did. Yeah. Uh, you're Deputy Mayor? Yes, I am. Uh, under Tony Wellington. At your service. <laughs> what do you, when people meet you for the first time, and I imagine you're, you're – I mean, apart from – we'll get to your theatre and production work shortly – um, but when you walk away from meeting someone for the first time, what do you think people – how do you think people would describe Frank Wilkie? I have, I have no idea. I, I hope they would think that um, I was helpful, uh, I was I listened to, that they felt heard, that uh, if they asked me to do something that I – they knew I would follow up for them and follow through on them, for them, follow through for yeah. them. I, I had a period of time where I entertained the idea of running for some – many, many years ago. And and uh, my wife Deb, who has worked in council in administrative roles before, she said, "No, you don't want to do that. You know what happens when you do that? You, you'll never have any time to yourself. You'll go out, and you'll be eating at a restaurant or a cafe, <laughs> and people will want to come over and talk to you about. Does that happen? It Frank? does. It does. It, it, and how do you cope with that? How did you deal with that? Well, <clears throat> you have to expect it. You have to expect it. And um, generally, people are pretty good." Yeah, and um, so they're often if they have a burning issue, they're often and you're sitting down with your wife and your daughter and you're out in a you're restaurant trying to enjoy a meal. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, they're usually <laughs> you know apologetic. Look, sorry, I, I know you're out with your family, but yeah. I've got this issue. So I normally get up and walk over and spend time with them, and then go back to the table, and yeah. that's it done. But I, I but think you find I'd that rather an intrusion. Um, no, no. Look, I, it's it's par for the course, and yeah. I'd rather do that and have them happy. Rather than me saying, "Oh, pardon me, can't you see I'm having a meal?" <laughs> you know, because you never live that down. You know, because no. you're there, you're there to serve. Really, I had a great quote, and I don't know if it's true. It was from former uh, Ipswich Mayor Paul Pasali, who was out to dinner one night, and I think a, a disgruntled um, lady came over and said, um, "You know, I've got something to talk to you about, and and you better listen because because you know I pay your wages." Yes. And his response was something along the lines of, well, if that's the case, I've got a lot of outstanding overtime to talk to you about. <laughs> Which I thought yeah. at the time, you know, just relating it to this, yeah. was probably a, a good response. Yeah. Let's talk about your your your, your theatre work. You're, you're a playwright. Yes. When, when did and how did that come about? Well, I've uh, been involved with, with the theatre for, at that stage, by about eight years. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I felt strongly compelled to write a uh, about changes in journalism. And my first play was Newsroom. It was about um, a regional newspaper which had been taken over by a global news corp um, style <laughs> <laughs> monopoly, uh, which has since come to pass. And But it's it's precious <laughs> that newsrooms are always under. So yes. it's when a, 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 it's a clash of cultures within a newsroom where you've got an editorial department that are gra- you know very grassroots based, um, wanting to um, do their best by the community, focus on the facts, and you have uh, perhaps a commercial arm or new commercial imperatives which um, are interested in maintaining faith with um, com- advertisers, um, real- the real estate industry, for example, um, advertor- where ab- 
it's about maintaining the integrity of of the news portion uh, and keeping without the, having the influence of that uh, commercial, commercial interest, side on editorial. That's right, or or, or, or government interest. Sure. And it was about this, the time it was written shortly after uh, the September eleven. Started okay. writing shortly after September eleven, where this hysteria just took over um, the you know, news. The, the news. Uh, that we were consuming, and you had um, uh, journalists calling for war, and uh, and uh, where journalists started, to, especially in some of the, the national publications, started to it, it wasn't news anymore; it was opinion uh, wrapped up as news, yep. and they started to be an arm of of a government. And as a journalist, you had access had access to the the news feeds from AAP and Reuters, and you got to see the facts. About uh, what um, weapons inspectors were discovering on their tours of Iraq, couldn't find any weapons of dis- of um, destruction and and uh, mass destruction. You just had this rhetoric from the politicians saying there's weapons of mass destruction. We've got to go. We've got to invade Iraq. And I'd just become a father at the time for the first time, uh, for only time. And um, I looking into holding a, your, your child in your arms for the first time. You just had a sense that life is precious and that there are parents uh, in Iraq holding children for the first time and yet here we are author going to war send our planes over to bomb mm. and potentially kill new parents and as, children as, over as there. As a journalist I, re- I remember this too and this uh, it really and I was just home. outraged. But uh, the the Chilcot report came out a couple of years ago that that, that absolutely beyond uh, you know said and reported yeah. that there were no Weapons of mass destruction. So yes. you've got, you know, uh, ex well, President Bush, Blair, and and Howard, and you've got the, you know, troops. I, I often put myself again, just relating it back to as a parent, you know, whose kids would have gone off to that war uh, on a lie. Yeah. How do you how do you feel about well, as a well, journalist? It was all like, that. What, I just thought I just felt the world. I thought this is not right. This is not true. And I felt the world went crazy. And there was a whole thing about the anthrax attacks. I remember hearing, seeing. Noosa's emergency services diverted to a cul-de-sac in Nooseville. It was totally shut down, guys in hazmat suits, because some terrified little old lady in, in, a, in a, a unit down the end of one of these streets had pulled out a, the last tissue out of the box and detected a white powder in the bottom of the tissue box, which was just paper fibres. Mm. And so she called the emergency, because she was terrified about this white powder, which hysteria. So, But the emergency services had to shut down the street, send guys in hazmat, hose her down, hose the place down. And that was the sort of... Re- ridiculous hysteria that had gripped our little community because of what was happening overseas in the wake of the September mm. 11th. The world had gone mad. It's also, and, and newspapers play a part in promoting that well, hysteria. Well, well all uh, media arms, whether you're print, TV or, or radio as well, play their part. And But even today I get, I get a sense, I mean, I'm, I'm a, away from it now, apart from this little podcast here in the house, but uh, which is not news-related, but... Uh, you know, I, I get the sense that that these media organisations, like your play, the play that you were, you were working on and wrote, they're feeding us information that they want to feed us. True. And so, where's the where's the truth out there? That must frustrate because it frustrates me. I consume very little news these days because I'm too much of a cynic, Frank. Mm-hmm. Are you the same way? Well, Do you I feel that when you. <laughs> well, uh, I I think um, I, you can be you can be a, live a happy, fulfilled, enriched <laughs> life without being plugged into any news at all. It is a filter placed over reality. Yeah. The news bulletins by necessity are the most, you know, dire, tragic, 
um, disastrous things that are happening locally. If they can't find it locally, they'll go regionally. If they can't find it regionally, they'll go nationally. If they can't find it nationally, they'll pull something in from overseas. But it has to be negative. Yeah. And I think it 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 uh, sours sours you and gives you a not an accurate reflection of the world. And that and. and and thinking about the the trajectory of the world, um, in the 20th century, there were major conflagrations where millions upon millions of people were killed in world wars. The world wars, uh, then you had the Vietnam conflict and the Iraq, you know, Iraq war, but it got smaller and smaller. Now we've got these little skirmishes breaking out with these fractured terrorist groups, but yet we're somehow led to believe that think we're somehow less safe than we were when tens True. of millions of people. Yeah. So the population, for some reason, needs to be kept terrified. And I think if you don't watch the news, John, you're making a, a, a good for you. Can, can I bring this, because uh, talking to a fellow journalist, I, I, I haven't spoken about this before, but I've often thought about doing it as a TED Talk. Working in a newsroom like the ABC, you are part of the editorial and a story comes through and it's the story of the day and there's a lot of hot air pumped into that issue. Mm. And you do these stakeholder exercises about who can we talk to about this, that and the other. Say it's Mel Bruff, for example. He seemed to be a, a popular one years ago. And so then, oh, we can talk to Mel, we can talk to the, the, the political lecturer at the uni, then we can go out in the streets and get some Vox Pops, which are, you know, we interview yes. people on the streets. And so you're all pumped up from from being inside the editorial room, and I'm sure this happened to you too inside the the confines of your your newsroom. And you'd hit the streets, and eight out of ten people that you would stop, and you'd say, "What do you think of issue X, Y, Z?" And they'd shrug their shoulders and go, uh, "Not an issue." No, I don't know. I didn't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. And you'd feel like shaking them because you thought, but it's super important back in our <laughs> yes. office when everyone's talking about it's the story of the day. Yeah, but it's really not. Well, when I, well, when I walked away then from the ABC in 2015, and like you, I actually didn't consume any news for, for a very long time, and I still really don't, um, I actually realised that those 80%, those 8 out of 10 people, they were kind of right. Yes. The, those stories weren't important. Mm. It was only because we, you, the media. Yes, tried to make them important. Yes. So it comes back to this thing about, you know, I, I feel a bit cynical about the stories that were kind of spoon-fed, mm, mm. but I don't want to, you know, really get to the truth. Maybe Trump's got something in all this fake news stuff. Let's not get started on Trump. <laughs> but back to your, your playwright your, your, and your performing. I've seen you in a couple of productions there, and you're, you're amazing. You're fantastic. They made me say those terrible things. What do you mean? Oh, some of the roles I had to play, like psychotic. Oh no! I haven't, I haven't seen some of the serial dark, adulterers. Stuff. I've, I've yeah. been with my son. I loved it. I so. loved every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're a great actor. You're thank great thank up you. on stage. I mean, thank you. And there is a, um, uh, you know, when you come out on stage and you're performing, and you, there's there's something about you on the stage, and the whole theatre really comes alive. Thank there's, you, John. You're a well. I, I don't I don't know whether it's because you have a profile and people. Oh, this here comes Frank. Frank's coming in and, and, and then boom, you know, you're, you're there. But you're, you're excellent at it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Like I said, I haven't seen you the darker stuff, only with a couple of kids' productions. Oh, look, it, it, it's often, um, you know, David Williamson writes some fantastic roles, very flawed human beings, which I just love. You know, the villains. I just love playing yeah. really people that behave very – adults behaving very badly, which are just a delight to watch. When do you get the time to rehearse and learn your lines? Well, and- well, John, like you, um, I, th- I figured that um, – if I wasn't learning a script at home and, and re- rehearsing and working with a team of people to put a production on for the delight of the community, I'd just be at home consuming news and, and screaming at the television. So I've, 
you know, it's a no-brainer what I'd rather be doing. Yeah. yeah. How many would you do a year? Productions? Oh, look, this year I've only – this will be the – I'm in rehearsal for the second one this year. Some years I did up to six. I'm big year in 2006, I think it was. I've done over about 50 now. Wow. Um, <clears throat> but this has been a bit of a quiet year. Some years only one. But, yeah, it's – I'm involved with the committee of the Noosa Arts Theatre, so a lot of behind-the-scenes work now uh, to keep it going. And it's important we have renewal, so um, it's great to be off the stage and 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 see new, fresh, new faces come through, like we have for the one-act plays and yep. Cosy and and shorts on stage. It's great we have people turn up that have never been to Noosa Arts Theatre before, and it's just healthy. Speaking of healthy, I know yes. you're super fit. You talked about running before and exercise, but you're also a bike rider. You, ride, oh, yes. you still ride a lot? I uh, I ride a bit, yeah. um, mainly to in days when I'm not running. Yeah, uh, but yeah, mainly, you run every day. Uh, not every day, maybe four days a week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cross country season's just finished. I love to do that every year. It's just a good discipline. I have a job where I, I, you know, as a counselor, you can you do a lot of reading and a lot of mental work, and you can sit on your backside a lot. So, you've got, you know, you've got to balance it out. Yeah. When are when are the next council elections? March twenty twenty. Oh, plenty of time. So about 18, 18 months or yeah. so. Yeah. You put your hand up again? Uh, at this stage, yes. Keep rolling? Yes, at this stage. Yeah. We've got a lot of work we'd like to follow through on. Um, we've made a commitment to introduce a transport strategy for Noosa, which is basically about attacking the the um, the problems of access in congested areas in peak time. So we're talking about around schools and at peak hours and all specifically around Hastings Street in busy times, which now is pretty much every weekend, public holidays and school holidays. So we're looking at a range of options there to improve access and and um, just make it a, a better experience for everybody. Frank, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming in. John, thanks for having me. Frank Wilkie was my guest today in Conversations in Noosa. I hope you enjoyed that. He's a good chat, great talent and a top bloke. All right, please rate and review the pod if you are downloaded it, uh, maybe via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Wooshka, all of those platforms have the ability for you to rate and review the pod. I'd really appreciate it if you could. And uh, what a great time. We're taking a small break while I follow the Noosa Slow Food Noosa delegates to Turin for Terra Mudra 2018. We've got uh, 54 episodes of our pod for you to explore. If you haven't caught up, this is a great time to catch up. We'll be back with more fresh podcasts towards the end of October 2018. Please take care.